Hey, look at somebody and say, it's good to see you. Now, mean it this time. Don't lie to them like you did last week. Hey, welcome to Crossroads Church. Welcome to both our campuses. If you're watching in Lompoc, we are so glad that you're joining us. My name's Sam. I have the great privilege of being the lead pastor here at Crossroads Church. And what that means is every single week I try to tell the greatest story ever told. Now, not because I'm some great communicator or it's even my story, but I believe this story is a story about Jesus. And Jesus is the greatest person to ever walk the face of the planet. Actually, he's more than just a person. I believe he's God in the flesh. And so if you've ever asked the question, what is God like? You don't have to look any further than the person of Jesus. And we believe the Bible is the story about Jesus. We say this around here. We say it's all about Jesus. Let me hear you from Lompoc. Hey, and uh, we wrote it on the wall if you need some help. And don't worry, Lompoc campus and Fred Hayes, we're going to write it on the wall too, because that's what needs to be in front of us every single day, that it's all about Jesus. And and that means you're going to need a Bible to follow along. And so if you've forgot your Bible, we got you covered. You can just slip up your hand at both campuses. An usher will get one to you. And then if you don't have a Bible, uh, take that one, read it every single day. That's our gift to you because every time you read it, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen. Three of you think that. Uh, I pray it's different three every week, uh, right? Uh, But every time you read the Bible, we all agree you get to meet with Jesus. Amen. Amen. That's what you need to be reminded of. And so uh, I want you to turn in your Bible to the Gospel of John. And if you're new to the Scriptures, you can start in the right and turn left, and you'll find the Gospel of John much faster. You go two-thirds of the way through the book, and you'll find uh, some guys' names, Matt, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're going to be reading from John chapter 19. John chapter 19, and we're going to read from verse 28, and then we're going to back up later in the sermon, and we're going to read some more of the text. Say amen when you're there. Amen. If you're watching on the online campus, there's a Bible tab there. You can click there and follow along uh, with us. John chapter 19 verse 28 says this after this Jesus knowing that all was now finished said to fulfill the scripture I thirst a jar full of sour wine stood there so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth when Jesus had received the sour wine he said it is finished And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. I want you to say that with me. It is finished. It is finished. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you, and we thank you for who you are and who you are to us. I ask for your grace today that we would look at this beautifully tragic story, and we would see your plan and your purpose throughout the whole thing. Pray that you would help me through words, through storytelling, through gifts and ability that you've given me. Lord, I pray that you would use all of that and you would illuminate this story. You would illuminate who you are, your character, your nature, your righteousness, your mercy, your grace. 
And I thank you that it would help propel us and compel us forward for your glory and the good of this valley. And everyone said, amen. It's passages like this that are uh, some of the more difficult passages to read. I mean, it's not going to be one of those verses that you say, this is my favorite verse. This is not one that you're putting on the mirror. This is not one that you're putting on your, uh, your Bible cover. But oftentimes the things that are best for us aren't always our favorite things. I'm preaching that now and reminding myself when I go to the cupboard at night. Amen. Right? Not always, can we agree, not always are the things that are our favorites are what's actually best for us. There's a contrast sometimes between the two, what we want and what we need aren't always the same. And, and that happens in our lives. I mean, sometimes the best things in our lives, the things that shaped us, the things that molded us. Sometimes if you talk to someone who's faithful, someone who's been around for any period of time, you ask them what made you into who you are? What makes you so faithful, integrous? What makes you so hopeful? And you're, they won't tell you about a good time. More often than not, they'll tell you about a bad time. And yet it's difficult, right? It's, it's difficult to think that, that these things can somehow go together. And you don't necessarily plan those. Like, like you think about planning the good times, but how does that usually go? It's hard to plan good times. And it's hard oftentimes to anticipate the bad. Things can go the way they're going to go, but somehow these things together make up this experience. We can't, they're not mutually exclusive, the good times and the bad. They are indeed sometimes one thing. And it's like, how is that even possible? I mean, how does something like a maple bacon glazed donut exist? You know what I mean? Like, how is this? monstrosity possible friends <laughs> can i can i can i just tell you that uh for a few days now i've been trying to figure out how i'm going to open the intro of this service and up until about 30 seconds before the video sermon bumper played in the first sermon uh, i had a completely different opening and then a man off to the side walked up to me with that bag and said pastor sam i have something for you it's a maple bacon glaze donut and I was like, thank you, God, right? Like, like, listen, I've used this illustration a couple of times before, but I've never had the actual donut on stage with me before, man. And I can tell you that God's country provisions, their cells go through the roof after these sermons. So I, tell you, I, I show up on Monday and they're like, we've heard you've been talking about us. It's like, what did I remember the first time like I saw one of these and I, I saw like that should not be so and then I I bit into one and I said this is exactly as it should be right <laughs> something about it and and then I use it like think about that like of all the ways I could try to describe the sovereignty of God right 
you're like, that's your bit, bro? Like with all the, the textbooks, with all the commentaries, with all the liturgy and the creeds, you're going to use a maple bacon glazed donut to describe for people the sovereignty of God. You're like, bro, that should not be so, right? And then you realize the Bible says he uses the foolish things to confound the wise. And you go, I am perfectly qualified, right? Like you think about uh, this is this is the thing about God and I don't quite understand it and it's in these difficult passages, things that I read and can I tell you right now, that is not the best thing for you even though it might be your favorite. But somehow, I mean it's higher than what I can articulate or explain and we would need years, maybe eternity to somehow explain how God is in control and in charge and planning and somehow takes the salty things of life and the sweet things and somehow takes all of those things together and makes something beautiful makes them and you can't fully describe it you can't plan it you can't anticipate it It, it's not like you can figure it out and and orchestrate it but it's oftentimes it's after the fact you see that those things sometimes are one in the same I mean think about it sometimes it was the moments waiting in the waiting room nine hours until the surgeries finished and it was the conversations with the the families waiting for the doctor to give you the news. It was in those times. So we haven't talked in years. It was these moments. It's when the loss of a loved one, it was the dinners after you. So we haven't done this in so long. We need to be together. And so somehow, even in the most difficult moments, somehow some of the best things happen. I can't explain it. Except to say some things, somehow God in his divine plan, in his divine sovereignty puts things together that just seem like they should not go together. And then what you know about the experience of life is it is these things, the tragic, the beautiful, enjoyable, this thing, life, somehow God is moving things together and it's in these passages I mean, it's not one of the ones where you go, man, this is my favorite Bible verse. This is the one I'm committing to memory. Hey, what's your favorite Bible verse, friend? Is it John 19, verse 30? Because, friend, what your favorite and what the best for you are not always the same. And one of the best verses in the Bible is the moment that Jesus says, it is finished. Oh, you can do a little better than that, friend. It is finished. I heard the Lompoc campuses before I heard you guys, right? <laughs> really? Like, uh, it is finished. But what did he finish? What did he accomplish? I mean, this is the real question. Like, we read this text, the death of our Lord and Savior. And then the death, the, the week we're going to anticipate Easter resurrection doesn't happen without this terrible day. Somehow we call it Good Friday. 
But only when you see the whole story could you take a day like that, a story like this, the one you don't necessarily go, hey, I'm studying the Bible, what are you looking at? The crucifixion. It's not one of those days. It's not one of those, those passages, rather. It's not one of those passages that you sit down and look for, yet it is the thing, it is the place where all of the story fits. It's the one place where the climax of the story, the exclamation point on it, is the crucifixion, is the death of Jesus Christ. And this is where the work is done. This is where the story, and see the Bible is a story. It's one continuous story from beginning to end. And all of that story finds its place in the person of Jesus. And it's this story we have to look at, we have to contemplate, we have to study, we have to, we have to think on and ponder because you have to ask the question, what did he accomplish and why this way? I mean, why did he choose this? See, God is in control. There's this plan and purpose and it doesn't quite make sense and yet the Bible's been telling us there is this plan, there is this story and even the most secular of people, and can I just be honest that most people are not atheistic. Most people, statistically would say, I have some type of religion or spirituality to them. Most people do not identify as an atheist, as if there is no God. I mean, if you were to listen to the most famous podcaster in the world, and for the sake of discretion, we'll just call him Joe. And if you were to listen, like oftentimes there'll be these moments where they'll discuss this idea of, of simulation theory. I don't know if you've heard this. It's this theory that actually some of those prominent people and educated people have embraced this idea that statistically, mathematically, the odds of us being in a simulation, or in other words, the matrix, some people are starting to call that the metaverse, I don't know if you've been there, don't go there, right? And yet, I don't know if you've seen this, but the idea that there is some type of simulation, or in other words, there, that we're all in some type of computer program and there's someone in charge, there's a group of people, or maybe even one, maybe he's writing code and he's making things happen, and that's how they answer the puzzling question of how do these things fit together? Why do I see so many coincidences? How do things fit and that I didn't expect? How, how do you explain law and nature? How do you explain order and design? And they are tempted to embrace the idea that we're all trapped in some type of simulation. And yet the Bible for thousands of years has been saying he's hidden eternity in our hearts that you know deep down inside and most of us know that there is more something in us is saying there's there's something beyond my present reality what I can see touch taste and feel there is more to what it means to be human and yet we're unique than all other creation and yet the, the, the same podcast may consider uh, and say things like this. I, I've heard him say if, if, if aliens exist and they're watching from another planet, they're going to say these are some strange apes, right? This is their, their, their 
conclusion, their observation is that we act strangely. Where do you even get that idea? Like what's strange? To imply that something is strange, it means it's out of order. It's not in alignment. It's a little off. Now, why would they describe it that way? Why do human beings get described as if there is something they ought to be? We don't even think about this in any other terms in creation. We, we don't think about what things ought to be. If you're talking about in order to describe something scientifically, you, you, would, you would just begin to describe something as it is. That is what it is. And it's just following the laws of nature. But not with man. You say things like they ought to be. Maybe you have a conversation with yourself and you, you go, you ought not do that. How many of you have conversations with yourself? I mean, no, it's okay to talk to yourself. It's even okay to answer yourself as long as you don't say, huh? Right? And yet uh, that, that's a harder one to kind of figure out. Oftentimes, let's be honest, we are quick to observe in others that they ought not do that. You ever thought like that? Don't look at them. Don't look at them right? And, and, and yet there's this idea that when I look at another human being, there's this standard, if you will, of, of in other words, I, I see as though they ought to be this way. I do not describe man as simply what he is. I describe what he ought to be. Think about it, even a dog. You, you, you say that's a dog and he's behaving like a dog. And if you ever met a bad dog, you say there are no bad dogs. There's only bad Look at you, Santa Barbara. <laughs> right, like, come on, like, the, 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 you're even putting uh, people at a lower rank. There are no bad dogs by nature. They just are dogs. You think that a man ought to be a certain way and you ought to train his dog in a certain way. And yet if there's a bad dog, he's acted in a way that he ought not. I mean, think about it. If, if I was to describe scientifically a rock I would just say that's a let's try this again uh, this is a now we're tracking this is a rock and you would never think about it being a good or bad rock you just say that's a rock just is what it is. The only time you decide whether it's a good or bad rock is when you get involved. And you decide, what could I do with this particular rock? Maybe it's a good rock for skipping. Maybe it's a good rock for juggling. Right? My wife said, Here you go. No, okay. Uh, uh, you, you say, uh, maybe it's a good rock for this, but not a good rock for that. Maybe you say, that rock does not fit in my landscaping design. You say, this doesn't fit the plan. See, these things only now have a good or bad to it when you actually, outside of it, begin to insert meaning or purpose. Someone outside of the thing begins to direct it or design it. It's the difference between the woods and a garden. The same plants, the same type of, of bush or shrubbery left to the wild is wild and woods. But in a garden, all of a sudden you see the designer. You see purpose. And you begin to see beauty. You see things the way they ought 
to be. And then you get to the person of Jesus where he says this line. He says, I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. This thing, the, the vine that wants to go wild and, and, and go its own way and the vine dresser lines up what ought to be. And when the vine grows in the way it ought to be, it produces fruit for others in enjoyment. That's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Or in other words, I am what ought to be. All of a sudden, we see the standard between the contrast between us and Jesus. We see the contrast of what man should be. That's why Jesus' favorite title for himself is the son of man. Man could not live in the way he ought to, so God became a man and lived that way for him and says, I am the way. This is the story of the Bible. This is the story of, of men and women going their own way, acting in their, what they seem is their own interest, not necessarily their best interest. See, your best interest is not always what your self-interest is. And yet when you live in a way that is in your own self-interest, it will lead you away from what is actually best, the contrast between what is good and what your desire actually is. They're not always the same. And the story of the Bible is this group of people being put on display that they have gone astray, even though they've had goodness and prosperity, even though God's favor has been on them, even though that he's allowed their desires to intertwine with his will. And yet every time they get into power, they plunge themselves into chaos. And all of a sudden Paul will write in Romans, I find this law to be true, this other law that's in me, and he calls it the law of sin and death that leads me away. I don't do what I ought or what I know to do. I do what I don't at the end of the day. I do, I do the, the thing that I should not do, not for a lack of, uh, 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 not in, in order to pursue goodness, but to pres pursue desire. James says it this way, when, when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, produces death, and the wages of sin is death. See, the problem is we look and observe the world, and we go, there's a lot of people who do what they ought not do. Amen. And then you look in the mirror, and you go, I keep doing what I ought not do, and in lies the problem. How do you fix this problem, this problem of sin, this problem of waywardness, that we win against design and purpose? See, God is writing a story, and he has inserted design into this whole thing. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are made in the image of God. You have purpose and design, and now inserted into your life is this idea of good and bad, and it's put in because now you realize there is purpose to this whole thing. There's a way in which things should be. Well, what do we do when people like you and I do not do what we ought to do? And it goes from the smallest of things to most egregious of things. 
And here's the story. The story finds its pinnacle. How are we going to solve this problem? I read to you the text. Jesus says, it is finished. But what did he finish? What did he do? What was this work? What was this plan? And here's the reality. Here's what you got to wrestle with. Is this was the plan? This was the plan of God? And you look at it, and at first glance you go, that should not be so. And yet it is the beauty and tragedy of the cross of Jesus Christ where we say that should not be so, and it's as exactly as it should be. This is the place. And now we have to ask the question, why? I mean, uh, one of the... One of the tech guys before the service, uh, he came up to me and he was trying to small talk me and I'm like on the computer like last night. And then he's like, so why did God do all this? And I'm like, that's, that's your small talk, right? Like, uh, <laughs> like, why did God do everything? Like, uh, yeah, you have to wait for my sermon today, uh, friend. It's like, like, you're just going to, like, I'm not giving you a private sermon before the sermon, but how did you know we were going to talk about this, <laughs> right? Uh, like, um, I won't tell you his name, but it was Aaron. And, <laughs> and, and yeah, that's the big question. Why, like, why the death of the son of God? Why in this brutal way? If you say this is the plan, this is the purpose, this is the salty and sweet sovereignty of God. This was his plan before the beginning of creation. Why? That's not how I would do it. It's not how you would do it. It's, com it's complicated. We got to look at it. C.S. Lewis would say you could make up something more simple and see all the religions that are made up, those are the simple ones. But in the divine nature and plan and sovereignty of God, he's written this story and the climax of the story finds its place in the person of Jesus to this line, one of the best verses where he says, it is finished. So here's what we're going to do for the next few moments. I'm going to go through and read the story. I want to point out some things, make some observations about the text. And then I want to conclude with the why. I want to look at the what happened, and then I want to maybe persuade you this is why it had to happen and why this is only possible from the divine, beautiful mind of God. So I want you to look at John. Open your Bibles back up. If you're on the online campus, you'll see... Um, you'll see the Bible tab there. You can follow along from there. I want you to look at the second part of verse, or actually I want you to look at verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, verse 17, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place, the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. In Latin, it's translated in where we get the word Calvary, the place of the skull. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. 
Many of the Jews read the inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews uh, of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Now we see the conclusion of Pilate's story and, and him wrestling with truth. We talked about over the past couple of weeks that even the most hardened of people will begin to shake under the truth of who Jesus is. And he's conflicted and even feeling guilty I mean, this man will ultimately wash his hands in front of everyone, which he does not have to do to wash this, this man's blood is not on my hands. He's trying to absolve himself of guilt. But when you try to take care of your, your own guilt, how does that work? Trying to absolve himself. Jesus knows he's trying to deal with his own, his own guilt because he sees the contrast of what he ought to do versus what he actually will do. He keeps trying to bargain and negotiate. He knows he should release Jesus because he is innocent. And yet he follows through with it. Why? Because this has been the plan. This has always been the plan. And yet Pilate is wrestling with it. Pilate, knowing the truth, for some reason, writes king of the Jews on the inscription. And yet fulfilling prophecy. He doesn't realize how true it is and it's more than true on the surface. I mean, the whole story of the Bible is that someday through the Jewish people, through the line of David, there will be a king, a king of the Jews, who will ultimately be king of the world. And yet how he will become king, no one expected. Because parts of their scriptures, the part where the son of man is coming, riding on the, crowd, on the clouds, and he comes down to bring justice and righteousness. And God the Father seats him in a heavenly place. And the son of man is lifted to the, uh, the place of honor, the ancient of days, this story in Daniel. And he says, wait here until I make your enemies a footstool. He's going to conquer the enemy, but no one expected how he would do it. No one expected this, yet Pilate writes, king of the Jews, it being truth and fulfilling that this will be the king. And yet it's in contrast with the chief priests. The chief priests actually just went on to say to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. I mean, the, the preposterous nature of that statement. They're gonna say they have no king but Caesar. Caesar, Caesar, who one makes himself like a God and you're going to call him king, the chief priests, the pastors, the leaders that are going to say, no, we follow Caesar. And yet their whole story is waiting for a king. Their whole story is wrapped up in God gave them prophets and judges and they cried out, let us be like every other nation. Give us a king. And God allows it just to show them what happens when men have places of authority, when men act like gods, when men think that they are sovereign. And he shows them, even the ones that are anointed, even the ones who are chosen, even the religious, even the spirit, all fall away. And the whole story of the Bible, the Jewish story, the Israel story, is over and over, God allows them to have prosperity and goodness. And oftentimes what happens is goodness leads us to a place of destruction. Isn't that strange? That, that, that sometimes what happens is we forget how we got there. And sometimes our favorite times are not the best 
times of what it might lead to. And that's the story of Israel. They, they come into power, they have a king, and then their kings get corrupted. And over and over, they plunge the nation into chaos. So what does God do? In his sovereign plan, he allows them to be conquered. Because that's what's best for them. And yet, this one of our favorite Bible verses Jeremiah 29 and 11, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, are in the middle of a letter to the exiles explaining to them, listen, I know this seems bad, but this is for your good. I know it's salty now, but it will turn out sweet in the end. A difficult time, and yet the plan and purpose of God. He allows them to be conquered First the Babylonians, then the Persians, and now the Romans. And the Romans have this torture device. The Romans have this, this, this way of crucifying and killing and getting their message out one of the worst times. And yet the Bible says that at the fullness of time, at the right time, at a specific time, this would be the time in which he would come. That's not what I would choose. It's not what you would choose. And yet this is the moment. This is the moment. And yet fulfilling this prophecy, the king will come, the king of the Jews. What you'll see as we continue on reading, you'll see over and over John inserts, and it was this to fulfill the scripture. It'll say in verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, meaning they nailed him to the cross and they put him in front of the crowd. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless and woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to seize whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. How Jesus is on the cross, how can he manufacture this? The passage we read uh, to start the service, it says that he said, I thirst in order to fulfill the scripture. And you go, so, well, maybe he's saying that because he knows what's written, but he can't possibly have a say in what happens with the guards. He can't possibly. And yet John quotes Psalms 22, which was written nearly a thousand years before. They divided his garments. They cast lots for his clothing. Psalms 23, I bet if I said, what's your favorite psalm? It wouldn't be Psalms 22. It's probably the one that comes after. So what's your favorite? And yet Psalms 22 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. The apostles and the leaders and the pastors, they quote Psalm 22. When you leave here, read Psalms 22 and you'll hear the death of Jesus put on display a thousand years before it takes place. Here the soldiers are in the plan of God. They're there. See, here's what you have to realize when you ask the question, who killed Jesus? Why is this all happening you read Acts 4, 27. It, it says this, 
They're praying. The disciples are praying after they've been brought before the synagogue, after the resurrection. They're all believers and they're praying for boldness. And here's what they say. For truly in the city, there were, uh, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Although Herod's there, although Pilate's there, although the Gentiles are there, this was all the plan of God. And you see it, they divided his clothes, fulfilling a prophecy. Hundreds of prophecies will be fulfilled. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, his wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. He was, he was meaning John, the disciple, standing next. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so that they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth, which would have been 10 to 12 feet into the air. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished it is finished and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit in the garden Jesus prays if it be your will if there's any other way allow this cup to pass from me but not my will but your will be done and when he drinks this sour wine to contrast with his first miracle where he turns water into wine. He drinks the cup. What he gives to you is different than what he takes on. What should be for us, he takes. And what he gives us is something we do not deserve. He takes the cup and he drinks it. And he says these words, it is finished. And he gave up his spirit. Even in that moment, Jesus is in control of his very last breath. So when you say they took his life, no, he gave his life. He drank the cup. He gave his life. Since it was the day of preparation, verse 31, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath day was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came our, came our blood and water. He who saw it is born witness. His testimony is true. And he knows John begins to preach as he tells the story. He says his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him, him who they pierced. Now this is, this is crazy. This is crazy talk. 
Because anyone who knows a Roman crucifixion and those who would be hung on a tree, it would be preposterous to think that not a single bone would be broken. Why? And then the story begins to give the details. They wanted to speed things up because the day was coming to a close and they didn't want bodies to be hanging on this high day in front of the entire city, this special holiday, let's get it over it. So the priest asked them to break his legs. Maybe they even have in their mind, we don't want this to be so, maybe we'll try to manufacture this. If we can break his legs, then, then all of these other scriptures, because here's the reality, if one of these scriptures is not fulfilled, then none of them are, and yet he fulfills all of them hundreds told thousands and hundreds of years before and yet what would happen is if they were going to speed up the process of crucifixion one of the worst torture devices in the history of the world what would happen is as their bodies would hang in distress on this cross the weight of their bodies would cause trauma and their lungs would begin to fill with blood and they would die from asphyxiation and so in order to speed up the process, they would break the legs of the men, making the weight of their body drop and speeding up the process. And so when they go to speed up the process, the man on the right and the man on the left, they look at Jesus and they see that he was already dead. And then they pierced his side. I had a, a, a science teacher in high school who was also a believer and she would tell us this story. And she goes, you, you know, that was in order to confirm his death. See, they didn't want to be accused uh, of allowing uh, him to get off the cross without actually confirming that he's dead. They're, they want to make sure the warden comes over and says, no, I'm going to sign the death certificate. We did and carried out the sentence. He is actually dead. And so in order to do that, they would pierce his side. And I'm no medical expert. This is what happens post-mortem is the plasma and H2O that, that comes together to make what we know as our blood. And when we shed it, it begins to separate. And here, blood and then water flows. And this was a confirmation that he had already died. And then thus fulfilling prophecy hundreds of years before that not a single bone would be broken. And if you were to say he's going to be hung on a tree, that would be nearly impossible. And yet this here is there. Do you know, do you know that even in the Quran, those who, who read the Quran, this Muslim faith, there's the story of the crucifixion in it and what they believe because they can't explain. There's too much evidence around the resurrection to explain that they saw him come back to life. And so nearly 1500 years later, they concoct a story said by an angel, but a doctrine of a demon who would say that somehow they switched his body and nursed him back to health because of the trauma. They allowed him to, 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 to be uh, nursed back to health and that's how they explain people seeing more than 500 eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. And yet here is the evidence of the confirmation of death. They pierced his side blood and water flow. Notice that they did not pierce the sides of either of those hanging beside of Jesus on either side, yet his side would be pierced, thus fulfilling. They will look on him, him 
whom they have pierced. You hear the story? Fulfilling prophecy? The plan? The purpose? Here's what happened, friends. This is a day. This is a terrible day. Only Resurrection Sunday can cause you to say this was a good Friday. Why would you say that? Only if you're looking back and going, I know what that accomplished. The question is, do you know the why and the what behind what he actually did? What did he accomplish? What did he mean when he said, it is finished? The whole story's done. The plot is done. See, the whole purpose We wrote it on the wall to help you. This whole story is all about three of you, thank you. Lompoc was there with me. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. The purpose is in order to reveal who God is. Romans says it this way, I don't consider our present sufferings worthy to be compared to the greatness of knowing God. The whole plan, the whole plot is to show you just who he is. Pastor Sam, that's, that's insane. What do, you, what do you mean? That's who he is? A sadistic dad who tortures his son? in order to be appeased? Maybe you've heard that argument before. It's a common argument. That's barbaric, that's ancient. Is it? What about the times makes us change what has always been true? And what you know to be true is if there's injustice, you cry out for justice. What I know is if you think things are not the way they should be or the way they ought to be, you hope someone comes and fixes it. Because God is just. He must. And we long for it. The Bible calls this wrath. Think about you when you see injustice, the worst kind of things. Man, what happens in you? Wrath and anger. And you look at somebody who doesn't respond. They say, what's wrong with you? Does it bother you? Do you feel anger towards that when you see a child that's hurt or abused or someone the weak and lowly? What is wrong with you? Yeah, that's how God feels. That's who he is. And you have that because he is that. And you're made in his image with purpose and design, knowing there's a way that we ought to be the Bible says that we've all gone astray we've all went our own way we're all fall into that category that no one is sin we all fall short of the standard we all fall short of the glory of God and for the wages of sin is death And that's the only way you'd see God is just. 
John Piper wrote a book called 50 Reasons Why Christ Came and Died. I would encourage you. I'm gonna send out a link to this. You can buy this on Amazon. You get it on your Kindle. It's a short book, 50 Quick Reasons. You could study this for all of eternity and never plunge the depths of all that Christ did. But one of the, one of the first reasons that he gives, and it begins to sum up the whole of it, is to absorb the wrath, or in other words, the justice of God. Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Romans 3.25, God put Christ forward as a propitiation, which means a fulfillment by his blood to be received by faith to show God's righteousness. What was the plan? To show you who he is. So he put forth Jesus to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. John, 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Jesus says, man, no greater love does anyone have than Someone will lay their life down for their friends. Paul will make this argument. He says, maybe you would give your life for a good person, a just person, but to die for the wicked? No, this is the plan. If God were not just, there would be no demand for his son to suffer and die. And if God were not loving, there would be no willingness for his son to suffer and die. But God is both just and loving. Therefore, his love is willing to meet the demand of his justice. And this was the plan before the beginning of time. See, the cross is the place where we see the character and divine nature of God put on display by the Father and the Son the justice and the love of God forever intertwined, that you may see him as the righteous God, the way we ought to be. And yet we couldn't live that life. So what does he do? He lives it for us. He pays the penalty, the debt that we owe God because we've went astray. Like sheep gone astray, no one chooses God no one Isaiah 53 says all we like sheep have gone astray we've turned every one of us his own way and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all he traded places see on that day you may think human beings are unique out of all of creation he makes dirt man a little lower than the angels and seats him in heavenly places and yet, among human beings, Jesus stands uniquely perfect. Uniquely. If we're unique in all of creation, Jesus stands above us all. On that day, we're all left of the cross and he is there standing in contrast. Not Pilate, not Peter, not Mary, not John, no one 
stood in the place of sorrow. No one stood in the place of iniquity and transgression. But God laid him in our place, all of us to the left, in order that we might trade places, his life in exchange for ours. This was the plan. Jesus did not wrestle his angry father to the floor of heaven and take the whip out of his hand. He did not force him to be merciful to humanity. His death was not the begrudging consent of God to be lenient to sinners. No, what Jesus did when he suffered and died was the father's idea. It was a breathtaking strategy conceived even before creation as God saw and planned the history of the world. That is why the Bible speaks of God's purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages of the world. It's not what I would do. It's not what I would plan. And it doesn't make sense. It's foolishness to the Greeks and a scandal to the Jews. But Paul says, I'll preach Christ and him crucified. That's the salty, sweet sovereignty of God. And his plan was the plan of salvation for you and I to be received by faith. When what we deserved was punishment, he took our punishment and he gave us grace. Grace means unmerited, undeserved favor with God to get rid of the guilt and the shame of what we know we ought to be and are not. We can live the way he's called us to live. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, you are working all things together. We couldn't see it, perceive it. We definitely couldn't make it up ourselves. But in your divine sovereignty, the plan for man was always that you would become a man and die in our place. And you would put on display the greatness of who you are. And now as we think about the beautiful tragedy of the old rugged cross, this torture chamber that now we wear around our necks, we look to the symbol of hope and salvation. You change the world because you put who you are on display and who you are as we behold you is what changes us. So let us behold the old rugged cross where on that day death died and you exchanged death for life. John wrote this book that we may truly believe you are the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing we may have life in your name. We receive the gift of grace and we receive it by faith. It seems foolishness, but somehow this scandalous grace that you forgive sinners is made possible by the work of the cross. Help us to remember when guilt comes, when shame comes, 
remember that we're no longer reading an invoice, but we're reading a receipt which says paid in full. It is, everyone said, finished. And everybody said, amen. Will you give Jesus one more hand clap of praise?